This week on the Backtable Podcast. To me, the most important decision that one makes in their lifetime is choosing their partner. And obviously, that is one decision that I thought I got it right. Uh, I have an incredibly supportive partner. You know, we have a collective dream. So whatever it is that I have accomplished in my career is not my own. It's my family, my parents, my wife, my kids, you know, multiple levels. So I think making that decision early on is the most important decision that you'll make. So if you are someone who's very driven, who really wants to go ahead in life, I think that's a very good thing to have a partner who understands you. And if you have that sorted out, I think 99% of all your problems are solved. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Urology podcast. I'm Ranjit Pramasamy, guest hosting today for Aditya Bagrodia. We have the distinct honor of talking to Dr. Dipin Parekh, my boss, my mentor at the University of Miami. The podcast today is on balancing acts, a journey in leadership and multitasking. And I can't think of anybody better to talk about both multitasking as well as leadership other than Dr. Parekh. Dr. Parekh is the chief operating officer of the University of Miami Health System, the chair of the urology department, and then now the founder of the Desai the Urology Institute, as well as the director of robotic surgery. And wearing multiple hats, obviously this is a formidable task. And so therefore we truly enjoy working with and speaking with and hearing from Dr. Parekh today. So Dr. Parekh, welcome to the Backtable Urology podcast. And we're very happy that you're able to do this. And to all our listeners and, and urologists, most of them that are listening to this, please share with us some of your initial thoughts on how all this happened and how you're able to wear and balance all of these multiple roles. Well, first of all, I just want to really thank you, Ranjit and Aditya, for thinking of me. I'm incredibly honored and humbled that you thought of me in this light. And uh, look, I'm happy to share whatever little I know. I want to start off by saying that every person is unique and every person is different. Just because something works for one person doesn't mean that that necessarily translates. So I think one should always do what they feel are the strongest that they are at doing. And while we all are born with certain strengths, I think there are a lot of things that we pick up as we go along. And I think my journey has been quite similar. You know, conventional thinking, when I was going through my fellowship in urology, I did my fellowship at Memorial Sloan Catering, the absolute best uh, urologic oncology program uh, in the world at the time, uh, in the best fellowship. And, you know, typically, you know, you work there, that people are very focused on one particular disease, one particular organ site. And that's so prevalent in medicine, and especially in our specialty. But for whatever reason, even though I went to places and I trained at places where people only focus on one thing, I'm just wired in a way where I just get bored of just doing any one thing. You know, it's just one of those things that you just stick to your strengths and stick to what gives you joy. Now, I guess I have two journeys. You know, the first journey is that of a doctor, you know, grew up in a simple middle-class family in Mumbai, India, where, uh, you know, education, as you know, is the absolute most important priority. Did my medical school, did my residency in general surgery, residency in urology, both certified in both, and got the Rotary International Scholarship 
came here to the United States just to kind of have an exposure to a different system in a different country before I go back to India and start my practice. But when I came here, I realized a tremendous gap that exists between the training that I received and how people actually did things. And that made me repeat my residency at Vanderbilt, do my fellowship at Memorial Sloan Catering Cancer Center. And then I went on an academic trajectory where I went to San Antonio and then I was chosen to be the chair of urology at the University of Miami. And a lot of these leadership things just happen, uh, you know, without any planning. I had only one simple goal, and that was to be the absolute best version of myself as a clinician and as a surgeon. Being at the top of my game in surgery was the most important thing that mattered to me, to give the best outcome to my patients. And then everything that happened in the leadership role or the leadership sphere, whether it is the chair of urology, whether it is creating the Desai Urology Institute, whether it is becoming the chief clinical officer or then later on the chief operating officer of the health system and the executive dean of clinical affairs, all those things were completely unplanned. And they just happened because I think I may have done a decent job in the core thing and that leads to many other things. So that in a nutshell is my journey. That's awesome. I know it's very easy for you to say it just happened. <laughs> But I think it'll be nice if you can shed light on some of the people that in your role, people in, in a faculty role that aspire to be chairs, people in chair roles that aspire to be deans and chief operating officers. What advice would you give them other than trying to be the best in their roles that they are doing? Do you think they should do something to prepare themselves, to educate themselves, to take courses? Or do you think this is all, this should all just happen to people and they shouldn't be aspiring for these things? How, 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 would, you, how would you give advice to the, to the people in roles that, that want to do something more than what they're just doing? That's a tough question. And knowing all that I know, and because I'm very genuine when I say that none of this was planned, I really, my suggestion is to just let things happen. Because when you let things happen, you, know, you, you are natural, you are in a flow, and in a flow state, you know, things happen when you want it to happen, when you're not planning anything. The moment you attach too much of your efforts to any particular outcome, your judgment can potentially falter or you may either overthink or underthink. Usually people overthink and procrastinate and think too much. And that actually comes in the way of you reaching greater heights. So I generally believe that if you tackle the problems that you face today to the best of your ability, and you are an approachable person who people think that you are fair and consistent, I think there are not that many of them if you look around. And just by sheer numbers or lack thereof, you will be asked to do more and more things in your career. Now, with that said, there are things that you can do to prepare. And I do remember when I was interviewing for my chairman, for chairman positions, one of the criticisms that I faced was that I was too young that I didn't have enough administrative experience. Even though I checked off all the boxes on the clinical arena, I was NIH funded with an R01 grant. I checked all the boxes, but this was a valid criticism that I did not, I was young and I did not have enough administrative experience. So, well, look, you can't change your age and the administrative experience takes time. But there's always the first time to do for one thing. So I did actually go and gain a master's degree in healthcare administration. So I did that. That did prepare me. That did help me. It doesn't help you to the extent that it, you think it will end up helping you. But it also is not as useless as many people think it is. I think there's somewhere in between. There's a middle path where I think it helps you to the extent if for you 
to realize some of your weaknesses and some of the things that you could enhance. But that's it. Just because you have a degree, it really doesn't mean that you'll be able to just march ahead. But if you have a degree, it basically tells the world that you spend enough time thinking about things other than your core strengths in medicine and surgery. And that time would be enough for you to continue thinking about those things for the rest of your life. Perfect. So not really add strengths, but at least identifies your deficiencies and gaps that you can potentially fill with that. Correct. And then if you ask me, the number one suggestion I may give to, to the viewers or to anyone is that while I've gone on my journey, one aspect that really helped me is we all have a lot of academic mentors or clinical mentors or research mentors. Not everyone is in academic medicine. There are a lot of us who are into private practice, but then they have clinical mentors. So there are everywhere there are people who are mentors on your field of work. So urology, let's call it urology mentors. But I think what has really helped me transcend this path from just purely clinical work or research work or administrative urology work to more of a systems level and business work is that I, along the way, have found lots of non-academic mentors and partners. And to me, that's profound. It's profoundly important because when we have our mentors in urology, most of our mentors are either great researchers or great clinicians. Some of them are great chairs of the departments who have managed the department. But what's the budget of a urology department? 10 million, 15 million, 20 million, 25 million. In the grand scheme of things, it's not a really large department. But you'll realize there are very, very few people, even within our specialty, who actually led organizations or managed things at scale. And when you don't have that readily available, you've got to look outside. And so when you have an opportunity, and, and the way we have opportunity is that if you're a busy clinician or a busy practitioner, you'll always come across patients who are that, or through some friends, or through some family, whoever. And I think many of these people who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies or, or other organizations, they have taught me to think at scale, to think about allocating or allocation of resources and capital, to think about problem solving at an organizational levels. And the one thing you realize with these mentors is that while these mentors have run organizations that are far greater or far bigger or larger than us, they would never tell us what to do in terms of clinical work, surgery, research, or education. They'll never ever tell you that. They'll always tell you things that they are comfortable about. But the general thing I've seen in our profession, especially in the academic side, is we in academics have way more opinion than we have information. That we may not have necessary information on many of the things, but we all have a very strong opinion. And that's what you learn. Actually, I've learned a lot about humility, hanging out with a lot of people from outside urology and outside medicine who are far more accomplished in their field than I am in anything, but yet are very humble when it comes to listening to us. And I reciprocated by listening to them and understanding and learning from them. That's awesome. That's wonderful. So most of the listeners in this podcast are urologists, urology trainees. And so even though they may know what the title COO means, I don't think they truly understand what that job involves. What does a COO job involve on a day-to-day -day basis? What do you do as a COO? What problems, at least a few of them, if you can cite some examples, so people understand what that role involves? Because a lot of people are like, oh, I also want to become a COO like Dr. Parekh. I want to go into administration. I want to go to the C-suite. 
But I don't think we, and I truly mean we as well, because including me in this, I don't think we truly understand what those roles involve. So can you please tell us uh, and the listeners what that role is and what that job entails and, and cite some examples of what that what that day-to-day looks like? I will definitely do that, Ranjit. But after I do that, remind me to talk about something that is very dear to me in terms of exactly the questions related to your question. So what are the details of the CEO? So I'm a CEO of the entire health system. We are the University of Miami Health System is a $4 billion, with a B, $4 billion health system. And that entails inpatient hospitals. And it also entails a very wide outpatient satellite network. We have close to now 1,800 clinicians who practice. They're all integrated. They're all employed by the University of Miami, either as faculty or as staff physicians. And so the way my responsibilities are broken down as a COO Knowing that this is a very unique health system, my CEO, the boss that I worked for, Joe Echeverria, that I report to, he is a CEO of the health system, but Joe does not have a traditional healthcare background. He comes from the financial services background. And so what, what has happened is that the role of the COO is much more than a traditional role of a COO in many other health systems. Because Joe comes from a non-clinical background, he has entrusted or delegated to me all the clinical decision-making. And what that means is that every single aspect of clinical care in the entire health system, so whether it is in the inpatient side or on the outpatient side, that folds up under me. So we have the chief medical officer on the inpatient side. We have the chief medical officer on the outpatient side, ambulatory side. They report up to me. And then the CEO of the hospitals and all the ambulatory side, they report up to me. Then you have patient safety and quality that comes through ultimately and reports up to me. We have all the construction and facilities and safety that reports up under me. We have, pharma- we have pharmacy that falls under me. We also have all the clinical department chairs. So we have about 16 or 17 clinical departments. And all these clinical departments, the head of the clinical, the chairs of the clinical departments, they all report to me for everything clinical. Whereas they report to our dean, Andre Ford, for all research and education purposes. So all the, all the department chairs, ultimately, on the clinical side, they do report up to me. Patient experience report up under me, executive medicine, international medicine. So I think basically, in a nutshell, every service line, everything clinical that you can possibly think of, that all falls under me as the COO. And all the ancillary stuff, like perioperative areas, patient facilities, construction, all that. And then ultimately, planning, right? So when you decide to open locations, open new facilities, new locations, the execution, the execution of the health system also reports under my umbrella. And and then again, just extremely fortunate that, you know, we have a very close alignment with the dean of the medical school. So it's a truly diet model where we are aligned because, you know, he is in charge of the patient, of the education and the research, and I'm in charge of the clinical side. And then the entire outpatient ambulatory practice plan also does report to me. And we also have a wonderful boss in Joe Echeverria, the CEO, because what we have learned from him is an enormous amount of discipline, how to run a large organization, financial prudence, strategic planning. I mean, all those things that typically we don't get to train or to work on 
I've been the beneficiary of doing this. And then while all these reports come to me, along with Joe, we report to the board. So we are, there's a health system, there's a health system board that we report to where we present all our uh, outcomes and finances and everything. Got it. So what does a day-to-day job look like, Dr. Parekh? Is this just problem after problem after problem after problem that you're solving? Is this meeting after meeting after meeting that you're going to? What does a day in the life of COO looks like? If all of these reports come to you and everybody decides to send an email to you every day with some problem, how do you go about dealing with this? How do you go about solving this? And, and how do you have enough time in, in, in a day to solve just about every problem? I, can't, I have to imagine that at least one email from each of those departments that you say have one problem that comes up to your comes comes through you. So is that on a day-to-day basis or is it something more and is there some fun behind all of this as well? Yeah, so on an average day, I get around three to 400 emails on an average day, not counting the weekends where it's a little bit less. You know, it's like anything, Ranjit. When you're learning how to do your surgery first time or when you become a faculty and how to see a very busy clinic, you grow into these roles, you learn into these roles, but the only way you can actually do things, but do things well. You know, it's one thing, you know, the, the title of this talk is, is multitasking and balancing. I mean, look, multitasking is actually, it depends upon who you ask. It can be a very good word or it can be a very bad word. It can be a good word if you're able to multitask, but you do each, but you do each task spectacularly well. And multitask is a terrible word if you are doing multiple tasks, but you're mediocre at all those tasks. So I'm hoping that, that you know I belong to the former, not the later. Yes, yes. Otherwise we wouldn't be. Otherwise we wouldn't be doing the podcast. So it's okay. <laughs> but but you get my point. And so I think the most the yes, absolutely the most important thing is that when you are starting off in anything, you have to go deep into many things to understand those areas. But then the most important job of a leader is to surround himself or herself with world class, high quality people who are better than the leader, because. If I surround myself with someone like you, which, which I have, then you are going to tell me how to do things, not the other way around. And then you are, I'm not going to come in your way. I'm not going to micromanage you the same way I don't like to be micromanaged. But I also know that you are going to do things for me that even I can't do for myself. So I think the greatest attribute of a, of a leader, especially if a leader wants to do multiple things and run an organization uh, across both, both vertically and horizontally, is to find the best team they can find or stand up or create the best team that they can find. And then you'll give them a free hand, but you still have to know and be engaged enough where if someone calls in the middle of the day or the middle of the night, you're exactly aware of what's going on in that area. So it's a learned learned skill, but I think it's no different than us when we manage a very busy, efficient clinic, when we manage a busy operating room, or we are juggling many balls in the air in terms of research, preparing for a talk, traveling, you know, all those type of things. It's just that you do it at a scale which is very different from managing a department. And you do it at a scale when when you're in a department, uh, there's a very very established hierarchy in a department where you're a department chairman or a chairwoman and you've recruited most of the people and there's a very clear line. But when you're managing a big organization and you're managing 16 to 17 department chairs, and as you can know, most of these are colleagues. Most of these are colleagues. And if you want to follow the servant leadership model, uh, you want there to be uh, a bottom-up, not a top-down approach. And when you do that, you have to have different skill sets in terms of the way 
you handle with people who are again far more talented than you are and far more accomplished than you are in terms of what they have done. So it's a combination of multiple factors here that goes into successfully managing this. I would say my average day, as you know, I still am very active clinically. I still am on track to do about 200 to 250 major uh, urologic oncology surgeries, right? So, you know, I, I still am active clinically, but I'm kind of doing multiple things all the time. But I'm not doing more than one thing at any given time. I may have eight different things that I'm doing on a day. But when I'm doing that one out of those eight things, my total focus, complete focus, is on that one thing. I think that's, I think that's extremely, extremely important. This happens more in the not-for-profit academic organizations where academic mindset is so driven by FTE. And, you know, I'm doing 0.2 FTE and 1 FTE and 0.5 FTE and I'm doing this. That, in reality, does not exist. When you are actually in a leadership role, whether you're a chair of a department or you're a CEO or you're a division director, whatever you are, you're on 24-7. I've never, ever had an out-of-office auto-reply in the last 11 years of my life. It doesn't matter where I am. When there's an important problem that needs my attention, I solve that problem not because, and it doesn't give me, in fact, I would like to solve the problem when I'm on the vacation and be done rather than come back not knowing about a problem and the problem compounding. So to me, it's an absolute pleasure to be able to give in this responsibility that I don't take lightly. It's a pleasure and a privilege. And how can I do the very best to fulfill my responsibility regardless of whatever happens in my personal life? That's awesome. Before I go on to the next question, Dr. Parekh, you wanted me to remind you about something that was very near and dear to you that you wanted to discuss. Yes, I think the one thing that I would like to just propose to the viewership is to just rethink the way we go about our training, right from our medical school to a residency to a fellowship and even as faculty uh, in the academic setting and even so in the private practice setting. I would just like to leave your leadership with, with one thought that if you don't get a seat at the table, you will be on the menu. And I realized that very early on when I became a chair here that the best way to drive the outcomes the way you want it to be driven as a clinician is by having a seat at the table and by participating in the decision-making. But to have that seat at the table, several things have to happen. And I would just urge all our academic colleagues who are way more smarter than I am, who are way more brighter than and more accomplished than I am, but it's just my plea to them to consider doing a few things that are different. And by that, I mean focus more on quality rather than quantity. Right now, if you want to promote someone academically or someone has to be known, we go only by the quantity. If someone has published 10 papers or 20 papers or 30 papers, every medical school has a criteria that you need to have published X number of papers or, or whatnot to go up. Now, Maybe all these papers are absolutely meaningless and, and you'll, be, you'll be promoted, but it, you'd have not made any impact, but you'd have wasted some precious time. But at the same time, what about people who do purely clinical work? Why can't we then talk about their outcomes? What about their patient satisfaction scores? What about their quality outcomes? What if there's a stellar clinician who's doing a great job those things should be counted rather than the research, rather than the education in terms of promoting that particular individual. Because you know what? That person has an, uh, has an immediate, tangible impact 
on outcomes and actual community and patient populations that actually should be more suitable for promotion of a rank. Whereas we are so focused on this whole quantity aspect. And by, by that, what we'll do is we'll create security amongst academic faculty. We will create differentiation in terms of people who really want to do academics for the love of doing academics, rather than being forced to do academics just to being promoted. And we'll create this class, we'll create, we'll create happy people who know that every single aspect of what they do is valued and will actually count to something in terms of their promotion. And it will also help the leaders in terms of allocating resources appropriately. Rather than giving equal resources to everyone, the worst thing a leader can do is allocate equal resources to everyone. But that's a sure shot guaranteed equal mediocrity for everyone. But if you do something like this, I think this could really move the needle in a very meaningful way. So that's number one. The other thing I would at least people have considered is the business of medicine. Now, Ranjit, you've been a faculty for how many years? Now? Eight years. What percentage of your time in the last eight years have you talked or someone has talked to you or you measured or you kept a track of your RVU production? Pretty close. I'm quite a bit. <laughs> Almost every day. Yes. Yes. There's not a there's not a day or a week. Yes. There's not a day or a week goes by right. that you're not tracking your work RVUs. Correct. You're not tracking so think about it. And this is the case nationwide. Every single person, whether you're in private practice or whether you're in academic medicine, whether you're a physician scientist who does research but does some clinical work, every single one is expected to keep a close track or watch on practice plans, on, on work RVUs, and yet, what's the training that you get in, in terms of business of medicine, either in the medical school, or in your residency, or in your fellowship? Nothing. There is no structured curriculum. So the other thing I would do is, I would really request to, to strongly consider the, the powers to be, to include the business of medicine into medical school, into residency, into fellowship, because that leads to my next point that I'm about to about to tackle, and that is sustainability. The way I look at everything is that the sustainability of academic health systems and academic medicine is in question. And what do you mean by sustainability? By sustainability, you mean financial sustainability, because if you are not able to generate the margins that you need to generate based out of clinical uh, work to then fuel the missions of research and academic work, you're not going to be financially sustainable. It's about sustainability in terms of people. What succession planning, what is the plan in terms of grooming future leaders in an enterprise where if something happens to the existing leaders or things have to change, if you don't have the right people, then your organization is not going to be sustainable. So whether it is people, I mean, Ranji, think about this. If tomorrow you tell me that Dr. Parik, thank you very much. I had a great time in Miami. I've got a great offer here in San Diego and I want to leave. We do have Tom Masterson, but imagine if we did not have Tom. That imagine even with Tom, it would be such a huge hole that will take years, if not decades to fill, even if you could fill them. So the point I'm trying to make is that it is not easy. It is not natural for us as doctors, as clinicians or as educators to think about sustainability, about financial sustainability, people sustainability, leadership sustainability. We never talk about it, but these are extremely important when you actually 
zoom out and you take a temperature of an organization and take a perspective, these are incredibly important vital pieces. And that's where I would request the academic powers to look at quality versus quantity in terms of promotions and tenure and whatnot, look at the business of medicine and look at sustainability. That's awesome. Dr. Breck, you spoke a lot about academic medical systems and you talked about how we don't know what's going to happen in the next five to 10 years. Give, I mean, you spoke about pressures of productivity, academic productivity and, and our views. We, I think we all recognize how difficult it is on the research side as well is to obtain grants and funding and so on. What do you think is going to happen to in, in five to 10 years when all of this is, is so hard? Are, are we still going to have these whole true academicians where NIH is, is putting a, a still continues to put a huge emphasis on surgeon scientists and physician scientists and running such a big healthcare organizations, being supervising so many clinical chairs, you must encounter so many physician scientists, surgeon scientists that exist today. But do you think they are still going to exist five to 10 years from now? How do you think this is all going to evolve in and what do you think is going to happen in the next five to 10 years to this academic physician model by residents and fellows? I want to go into academics. I want, I want to do this. I want to do that. What should they all think and what advice would you give them as they are trying to embark on this journey? That's a great, great, great question. I'm very certain about the answer. I'm not certain about the time frame. So the answer, the answer to your question is no. All those things that you talked about, the physician academic model, the surgeon scientist or physician scientist model, the way we know it is not going to exist. But what I don't know is whether it's going to take five years or 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. I don't have a crystal ball, but the, we can't predict the future, but we can prepare for a future. And I think what you're saying, Ranjit, the way an optimal model will exist, but only for, for, only for sustainable organizations that will differentiate themselves with time by being more and more sustainable, which means the stronger and the sustainable organizations will continue to grow and produce these unicorns, but the organizations that are traditionally fighting and trying to follow the same age-old model is going to continue to be, be, be behind because the moment you try to be all things to everyone, you'll be nothing to everyone. Then again, I come back. The answer to your question is sustainability. We can't preserve the current academic model. If you are telling me that all the 100, 200 health systems, academic health systems in the country are going to be on the same pathway and this model will exist, I'm going to tell you absolutely not. But there'll be a few who will be aligned with the physician who will adapt. I mean, look, the Darwinian theory of evolution has taught us. It is not the strongest that survive. It's the people who adapt that survive the, the longest. And I think not many organizations have adapted. And I think those organizations that will adapt to the reality will survive. And by the way, adaption or adoption does not auto automatically mean throwing more money or utilizing more gadgets or having AI help them out. I'm not talking about that at all. Sustainability comes at a very basic level in terms of how you manage your enterprise. And those organizations that are financially sustainable will be academically sustainable to the highest level. Those that are not financially sustainable and will continue to depend upon philanthropy for poor execution of their operations will continue to be left behind. And therein, I feel we in the University of Miami have a tremendous opportunity to be on the journey. That's awesome. 
You touched upon a little bit about an important topic of philanthropy. How do you think that has helped you in your role, leadership, in your visibility, visibility of the organization? And what do you suggest for people that are thinking about getting it and, and what strategy should they all be using? Because you've obviously been very successful at doing that. So, so please give us the listeners some, some advice on that. So philanthropy, the first thing about philanthropy is relationship. You know, you have to be excellent at your field and you have to give great outcomes to your patient. I mean, it's a simple thing. We have the grateful patient model of philanthropy here where you just do your best for every patient. You give the best outcome, but then the vital piece in philanthropy is building a authentic, genuine relationship that has nothing to do with philanthropy. You are just building a genuine relationship. Who builds a genuine relationship? If you are building a genuine relationship only with the rich so that you can get money out of them and not with people who don't have the means to give money out of them, you will be not authentic. You will be unauthentic. People who have the means will sniff you out in a heartbeat and they'll move on. But if you are just a naturally curious person who has a knack of building a relationship of positivity and strength and empathy with your patient, whether your patient is a school teacher or your patient is a gardener or a patient who is a multi-billionaire, it is easy because you know what? At the end of the day, there's always something you can learn from everyone. And that's when you build relationships and your natural curiosity. And typically, most people who have the means to give are very accomplished people outside of their wealth. That they've done something in their life that has generated their wealth and for me, the natural curiosity is more about learning from them. But what is it that they have done? What is it that they have learned in their sphere that I can A, learn and B, apply into medicine that helps me form very natural, authentic relationships and friendships? And Ranjit, I've never ever made the first pitch or the first ask about money. I've never ever done that. I just focus on having a very organic, nice, good relationship. And typically, it's, it's these grateful patients or their family members who then come to me and ask me, uh, you know, you do all these things, what can I do for you? And that's beautiful. And when they say that, then I'm not shy. Then you obviously, you know the level of uh, giving, uh, you know the history of giving for many of these people. And then you partner with your, with your development officer to then create magic. And you know, in our case, we have a wonderful person who helps us with all that. So that's what I do. That's awesome. That's awesome. You obviously juggle multiple roles. We've talked about multitasking. Work-life balance is very common. People are giving talks on these, writing books on these. There are several podcasts on these. You talked about, I want to solve problems on my vacation because I don't want to come back from vacation and have a bigger problem on hand. Out-of-office emails for most faculty are the norm these days. If you don't put out-of-office and try to respond to the email during vacation, the person receiving the email gets offended. So this is a new generation where you are seeing this, we are seeing this, we're probably seeing this in our own kids as well. What advice do you have for people thinking about it? How do you balance these? And what advice do you have for the for the listeners? Yeah, I mean, I so the way I look at this whole thing is, to me, the most important decision that one makes in their lifetime is choosing their partner. And obviously, that is one decision that I thought I got it right. Uh, I have an incredibly supportive partner. You know, we have a collective dream. So whatever it is that I have accomplished in my career is not my own. It's my family, my parents, my wife, my kids, 
you know, multiple levels. So I think making that decision early on is the most important decision that you'll make. So if you are someone who's very driven, who really wants to go ahead in life, I think it's a very good thing to have a partner who understands you. And if you have that sorted out, I think 99% of all your problems are solved. About the, about the other 1%, well, what is work-life balance? I mean, your life is work and your work is life. I don't, I don't consider, I mean, look, think about when you are eating food, when you are having a great food at a great restaurant, and when there's a nice music going on, do you only focus on the food or do you enjoy the background music or do you enjoy the dance or do you enjoy the jazz bar when you're going for a drink? Do you do that or you don't? You do. If you are sitting and sipping, sipping wine in, in a beautiful garden where you are and a, and a beautiful bird comes by and sits right there, are you going to enjoy that bird or are you going to say, you know what, I have no time to look at you bird, I'm just going to sip my wine because that's what I'm focused on doing. It does not happen. Life is not that way. Even if you forget about urology or being a physician, no matter what you do, there are always, the universe throws so many things at you at so many different times, many at the same time. How foolish it would be to not enjoy everything all at once in sync, in tandem. So the way I look at this is that I would never be happy with my life if I was not excelling at my work. I wonder if I would be as effective as my work if I was incomplete and unhappy in my life. So I think both need each other. And so rather than making it mutually exclusive, it's not an either or proposition. It's a blended work and life balance with your time for everything, every time, any time. And if you have people around you who are sensitive to that, who respect that, because ultimately remember whatever you do, Ranjit, whatever I do, while they are the recipients of all the negative things that may happen to us, they are also the, the primary beneficiaries of every single good thing that happens to us. So if you can do that and surround yourself with the best people, I think you just completely eliminate this whole work-life balancing. I mean, try this once. Try taking a week off and just putting your feet up on, on a beach or going to a forest where you're completely disconnected from everyone to truly enjoy your work-life balance where there's no work, there's only life. And I can guarantee you after two, three, four days, five days, six days, name a number. It could be six days, it could be two days for someone, it could be two weeks, it could be two months. At the end of it, you'll be driven crazy. You know why? Because your purpose is something else. There's a purpose behind all what we do. And I think they all, they all exist in tandem, in sync. I mean, don't tell me when you're doing a perfect surgery. That doesn't give you the same or more happiness than you would by watching an opera. So then is your work where you create your best work and you get the most sublime satisfaction that supersedes everything else that you may have experienced. So that's the way I look at it. That's awesome. Well, we're coming up on the hour. I can't believe it's already been 50 minutes. So we just have time for maybe one or two more questions. But And I'd love to hear your parting thoughts on this. But you've been an innovator your whole life. You've made remarkable discoveries. You've obviously gone on to won the Gold Cystoscope Award for that and then went on to publish uh, one of the largest landmark trials in bladder cancer. And I'm sure now you, in your administrative COO role, you're also innovating and changing things that unfortunately don't get published in peer-reviewed literature that urologists are able to read up about. But what do you think about being an innovator and a manager at the same time 
and how do you balance these things and how do you go about still doing both in your current role? That's a great question, Ranjit. So I don't think that I'm finished as an innovator. That never goes away. But innovation happens through other people. So even though you're in sexual medicine and infertility, when you wanted the Orbi microscope and I was able to get it in your hands in less than 24 hours, and then you go on to publish and do great things with it, I feel I'm a very small 0.001% of that process. That's the way I, I look at it. I still have a lot of thoughts, but anytime I have an innovative thought in my own field, what I do is I share it with my colleagues or my fellows or my residents, and I give it to them, and I do that. But the most important thing that I realize is I myself am more focused on quality than quantity. So if there's nothing that excites me, I don't want to go back and publish one other database paper or one other retrospective review on NCCN guidelines. So I don't want to I don't want to do that. I'm not interested. And if something exciting comes up, exciting enough to innovate, where I want to involve myself very closely, I'll do that. I'm thinking about a couple of ideas. Hopefully it will come to fruition and uh, something magical will happen. But again, quality over quantity. That's awesome because you've done this obviously your whole clinical life, but I'm sure you're also doing this in your administrative role where you're coming up with innovation doesn't necessarily need to be in urology. Innovation can be in administration. Innovation can be in leadership. Innovation can be in looking at a problem that other people have not looked at before and a new solution. So so I'm sure you're doing that as well. And it must be challenging to do it in both clinical as well as non-clinical fields. But that's why I wanted to see how you're able to do this both in urology, which you've done very successfully, but now in the role that you have right now to come up with new solutions. Because I'm sure there are new problems and you can need to come up with new solutions on a daily basis, if not, if not more frequently. And we do, Ranjit. And the other big difference is in medicine, for the most part, innovation equates to a peer-reviewed publication. And obviously, the higher impact it is, the better journal you get into. But innovation in the hands of not-for-profit world is entrepreneurship. And that's where you file for patents and you monetize that. That's a big difference that in our field, very few people monetize it. In outside field, they monetize it. But talking about innovation having no limits, you know, I was the commander-in-chief for the entire COVID response, and we created this group in the hospital site. So if you do PubMed and you put my name, you'll find at least 10 or 20 publications and not related to urology, where I'm not the primary driver of it, but I've contributed in some ways to it, which are very innovative in terms of systems level. That's awesome. Dr. Parikh, so we have like a few more minutes left. So this has been wonderful. I've learned a lot already, but really I'd love for you to end with some parting thoughts on some advice that you would give for the younger generation, for residents, fellows, faculty that are listening to this, chairs that are probably listening to this to try and see what they can all be doing in their roles and and some advice on on what everybody should be doing at different levels, trying to see how they can distinguish themselves, differentiate themselves, and try to prepare themselves best. So like you said, it, it has to happen on its own. What advice would you give for people to, to be their best and to prepare for the next role the best they possibly can? The best piece of suggestion, I'm not wise enough to give advice to anyone. No, no, you do. You That's why we're having you on the podcast. <laughs> no, the, the one thing that I would express is there's not much that others know that you don't, whoever you are, wherever you are. And while everyone has their own journey, the most important aspect of you is you, your qualities, your strengths, your weaknesses. So don't try to copy anyone else. You could be someone who could be focused on one thing and you'll knock it out of the park, or you could be focused on multiple things, and you'll do great in multiple things. 
So just follow your instincts, keep your eyes and ears open, learn from people. There's no no one person in the world who's good, just going to teach you everything. But there are lots of great qualities, simple, small qualities you can learn from multiple people and try to apply. It's equally important to know what not to learn or what not to do. And that's an important quality as well. So just be original, you be you, you'll carve your own path to success. The most important thing I would like to leave with, with people is, just because you have titles or you have accomplishments or you have publications or you have awards, does not make your career a success. I think success is very internal. I think you could be in a, some rural hospital in a community doing the best work out there. And in my eyes, you're the most successful human being in the world. So success is being at peace with yourself internally, knowing that you are doing the best you can in what has been offered to you or given to you and make a difference. And no difference is small or big. Every difference is a positive difference that you make. And in some people may have lots of material things to show for it. Some people may not. But that person who's happy doing simple things, regardless of any of glory, whether they receive the glory or not, to me is my idea of a successful person. Well, with that, I'd like to conclude our podcast to really thank Dr. Parekh for joining us on this wonderful and valuable journey on leadership, on multitasking, on how to balance everything. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you to all the listeners for tuning in. Thank you to the Back Table Hero for the honor. And uh, it was really a lot of fun and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.